أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعجل فرجهم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله um, Brothers and sisters are we live? Just want to make sure we're live um, Alhamdulillah we have Made it to article 132 of the book. I my internet's having problems here. I can't log on to Facebook. But um, I'm going to go over what we co covered before uh, a little bit and then start with today's uh, talk, inshallah. So last week or last session, excuse me, what we had was we discussed, the last thing that we discussed in article 131 was regarding how love of Ahlul Bayt is something set in stone when it comes to the Islamic faith. Everyone believes that you have to um, love the Ahlul Bayt and the family of the Prophet based on ver a verse of the Quran and of course hadiths that we all have. Now, um, what we covered was a verse or a couple of verses about that and then Ayatollah Subhani what he wanted to do was he wanted to get out of this uh, idea of loving Ahlul Bayt he wanted to show that look so there is reason for celebrating the Prophet's birth and for celebrating these figures of Islam he also draw another conclusion from this as well from this understanding he says okay so if we have been ordered to love the Ahlul Bayt, then we also, this will also explain why we believe that if the Ahlul Bayt, if something has happened to them that is, is sad, that we will also be sad <coughs> and we will commemorate their sadness that, and their hardship that they've gone through. He says that, that's the idea he wants to get out in Article 132. But it's important to understand that Article 132 is based on Article 131. So that's in happiness and times of happiness. He's saying that we are going to celebrate them, we are going to remember them, and at the same time, in the times of hardship, their hardship, their suffering, we're going to remember them, and we will mourn for them, and we will commemorate. That's what he says. So I'm going to just start reading off of Article 132 here, where he says, Mourning of religious leaders, it says, that the translation says at least. It says, he says, from what has been said, the philosophy, so what has been, from what has been said, what he means by that is what was discussed in the previous article. From what has been said, the philosophy behind mourning the death of religious leaders will be clear. Okay, so why is he bringing this up? Of course, he's bringing this up because of what the Shia especially are known for when it comes to the mourning for the Ahlul Bayt alayhimussalam. We have to understand, this is not surely a Shia thing, yes, there are many, many Sunnis also who will commemorate uh, the 10th of Muharram, for example. They will observe its sanctity. 10th of Muharram being the death of and the martyrdom of Imam Al-Husayn Of course, as a lot of you know, uh, who might be Shia who are listening to this, um, 
There is another reason that uh, the 10th of Muharram is revered and observed in the Sunni faith. And that is, and it's, it's a day of fasting and it's a day of worship maybe and it's a day that we have that, well, there are hadiths that say that of course the Sunni school believe in more than the mainstream Shia school. I don't want to get into details of what the Shia say about these hadiths anyway. But um, based on hadiths, they will say that, you know, this is a day that good things happen throughout history and uh, during the time of different prophets. And so as a result, the Holy Prophet said that we're going to fast this day. Anyway, so that's a day that is fasted. Shias have, a thing, have something to say about that, which I'm not going to get into. point I want to make right now is, but there are a lot of also of our Sunni brothers and sisters who will observe uh, this day because it is the martyrdom of uh, Imam Hussein a.s. Now, usually for Ahlul Sunnah, that's as much as you will get, that there will be some who will commemorate the 10th of Ashura, uh, the 10th of Muharram, excuse me, which is Ashura. But uh, the Shia also, they commemorate other days of the deaths and martyrdoms of other Imams that they believe in and will observe those days as days of mourning and commemoration. Why is this the case? That's what Article 132 is for. He says, listen, did, not, did we not cover in the previous article that the Holy Prophet has asked through the Qur'an, قُلْ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا إِلَّا الْمَوَدَّةَ فِي الْقُرْبَةِ The Holy Prophet says, I don't want anything from you except that you love my progeny, my descendants, my Ahlul Bayt. Right? If this is the case, then if we love someone, we are upset when they are hurt. We are upset when they suffer. I think it's very, it's common sense really. And so as a result of that, the Shia will mourn such days. So having said all of that, he says in the book, from what has been said, the philosophy behind mourning the death of religious leaders will be clear. What he means by religious leaders, of course, is the Imams and other figures of Islam, but mainly the Imams. For any kind of gathering held to commemorate the afflictions and tribulations of these personages is an expression of love of these persons is an expression of love and affection for them. If Yaqub mourned for long years at the loss of his beloved Yusuf, weeping profusely, the root of this emotion was the depth of the love he had for his son. So what's he saying? He's saying if you love, you will weep when you remember hardship and tribulation of somebody that you love. It's very simple, I think. In this light, one can more readily understand why those who bear love for the family of the Prophet should weep and shed tears on the days of commemorating their death. They are but following the example of Prophet Yaqub So he's, uh, Subhan is trying to get away with this, um, and I'm not saying he's wrong about it, but he's trying to say that, yes, look at Prophet Yaqub, and the Qur'an mentions that Yaqub wept over Yusuf. Does the Qur'an scold him? The answer is no, so it's fine to do that. But listen, brothers and sisters, um, we have to be fair as well. There will be answers that will be given to this. Prophet Yaqub wept for his son because his son had passed, uh, was going, he was gone, and he didn't have access to his son, and so he missed his son. He was in love with his son, etc., etc. Some people will 
who disagree with the Shi'i school of thought here and in the way that it commemorates the martyrdom of their imams, they'll say, look, we, we agree that it's okay for Prophet Yaqub to mourn the loss of Yusuf because Yusuf's still alive. But you Shi'is, what you do is you're mourning after 1400 years, 1200 years, 1300 years that your imams have passed away. Where do we have that in the Qur'an? How is that justified? So on and so forth. The answer that the Shia will give, the answer that the Shia will give is that look, we first of all have many hadiths in our sources that encourage us to weep for a person like Imam Hussain And with that weeping, an emotional connection that takes place and through that it is that the memory of Ashura is kept alive, the memory of Imam Hussain is kept alive. And the Shi'i school believes that yes, there were people throughout history who, would, who, were, who were okay with and who would liked to have been able to wipe out the memory of Imam Hussein. If Imam Hussein had not been kept alive by the tears of people, because when you, when you shed tears for something or somebody, that's when an actual emotional connection has taken place between you and that thing. And a strong bond is there and it's hard to get rid of that thing. Others can't get rid of it that easily anymore. It is only through that that uh, the memory of Imam Hussein is kept alive. So we have, the Shi'i school has many hadiths, brothers and sisters. We have to understand, as a person who's not from the Shi'i school of thought, yeah, I have to understand, for example, that the Shi'a follow the Imams when it comes to learning what Allah wants from them. The same way in the Sunni school maybe, there will be people who will, and this is mainstream, will follow the Sahaba. And the Amal of the Sahaba, in learn, when it comes to learning about the Deen and what the Deen wants. And then later on, the, uh, the four Imams of the, of the four Madhahib. Alright, so a person who understands that, okay, the Shia, they follow what Ja'far al-Sadiq says, what Muhammad al-Baqir says, then they should accept at least that, okay, these people aren't acting on whim, upon whim. They are doing it, they have reason for it. They follow whatever they find in their books of, Imam, of what Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, for example, has said. And there are a ton of hadiths by Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq regarding ziyarah of, Ahl, of the Ahl bayt or ziyarah of Imam Hussein or shedding tears for Imam Hussein and so on and so forth and commemorating Ashura and so on and so forth. So this is something that's not based on nothing. It's based on our sources, what our hadiths tell us from our Imams. We have that. Plus, of course, we also believe that the Holy Prophet has spoken about this as well. So it's not something that's just out of the blue. So Ayatollah Subhani here is saying that Prophet Yaqub did that and so on, but there will be an answer that's given, and we have to be fair here. The answer that's given is, okay, Yaqub's situation is a little different than uh, what you Shia do today. And the answer that should be given, in my opinion, a stronger answer is that, look, each madhab, whether it's Hanbali, whether it's Shafi'i, whether it's Hanafi, whether it's Maliki, whether it's Ja'fari, they go to a certain Imam or Imams to get their deen from them. Okay? And so the Shia are getting it for Ja'far al-Sadiq Very simple. And Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq says, I want you to commemorate these things for as long as you know, you're alive. 
and it's highly encouraged. So that's, I think, is a better way of putting it. But I think what Ayatollah Subhani here is trying to do, brothers and sisters, is to try to find Quranic proof for this, not just hadiths that the Shia have. That's why he doesn't go there. He just keeps it to the Quran. But as I said, I think this argument of Prophet Yaqub doesn't do the job completely, although it kind of helps. Because there might be some people who might say, don't even mourn when the person is still alive and is going through hardship and tribulation. Come on. This is the Prophet Yaqub. And this is the Quran saying that it's perfectly fine. And the Quran doesn't call out Prophet Yaqub for that. And trust me, the Quran does call you out if you mess up, even if you're a prophet. Yeah. For example, with the, in the story of Prophet Adam, it says Prophet Adam forgot the covenant that he had with us. Yes, and walam najid lahu azma. We didn't find too much resolve and willpower in him because he messed up when he took from the tree that that forbidden tree or forbidden fruit. So. The Qur'an will not hold back, yet here hasn't said anything about Prophet Yaqub, hasn't scolded him, although his sons were scolding him, telling him, Dad, what is this? What is wrong with you? Why are you weeping so much for Yusuf? They would say that to him. But the Qur'an never says that. I can't remember any part of the Qur'an that will speak in a negative tone about Prophet Yaqub's weeping for Prophet Yusuf. Point being, brothers and sisters, that true, the Qur'anic, uh, the verse that they brought, isn't going to do the whole job, but it does the job for some at least. To an extent, it might do the job. Okay, so that's that. <sighs> All right. In principle, he says, the establishment of gatherings for remembering dear ones goes back to an action performed by the Prophet himself. Once again, Ayatollah Subhani wants to use proof that everyone you know, ag agrees on. First he tried using the Qur'an, now he wants to use Sunnah of the Prophet. Okay, well tell us about that. What did the Prophet do? He says, performed by the Prophet himself, when he noticed after the battle of Uhud that women were mourning the loss of their martyrs among the Ansar. The Ansar are the Medayinan helpers of the Holy Prophet. The Prophet had two sets of followers. Those who followed him in Mecca, and went with him and migrated with him to Medina or stayed in Mecca because they couldn't migrate. Nonetheless, they were Meccan. Those are called the Muhajireen, the migrant, the ones with the migrants, the ones who migrated. And then you had the Ansar. The Ansar are the ones who were in Medina, who embraced Islam later, embraced the Prophet, gave him a place to be, and took care of him and protected him. Both were very high groups of people, the Meccans and the Medinans of the followers of the Prophet the Muhajirin and Ansar. So here it says, when the Prophet noticed after the battle of Uhud that women were mourning the loss of their martyrs among the Ansar. Alright, battle of Uhud. In the battle of Uhud, Muslimin got killed and became shaheed. And so the Ansar, the women of the Ansar were weeping over the, the shuhada of Ansar. He fell to thinking of the loss of his magnanimous uncle and said, but nobody is weeping for Hamza, Sayyid al-Shuhada. So the Prophet, he notices that the Ansar, because their families are all there, they haven't migrated from another land. So the families are all there, the women are all there, and so they can weep for the ones that they've lost of their family members. But 
there were some of those who had migrated from Mecca, like Hamza, the uncle of the Holy Prophet, who no one was weeping for because they weren't. He didn't have any relatives in Medina. So here, the Prophet, he, it, it kind of hurts him to see that no one is weeping for Hamza, Sayyid al-Shuhada. And so what happens is, the Prophet says, no one's weeping for Sayyid al-Shuhada. Alright. What happens here is, when the companions of the Prophet sensed that the Prophet's wish was for his uncle to be mourned, they instructed their wives to organize a session of mourning for him. For Hamza Sayyid al-Shuhada. Now of course, Ayatollah Subhani here will give references for this claim, as he should. Let me pull it up real quick. This is in, he says, one is in Miqrizi, Imta'ul Asma', another one, and the Sirah of Ibn Hisham as well, he says it's there. Alright, so these are some books that this I have mentioned this story. Anyway, The session took place and the Prophet out of appreciation for this expression of compassion from the warners made a prayer on their behalf. He prayed for them. He said, May God have mercy on the Ansar. Then he asked the leaders of the Ansar to tell their women folk to return to their homes. As if, you know, as if like, okay, thank you. That's enough. That does the job. And the Prophet felt better now about that. And so he did and so he told them, Okay, you did what you needed to do, you may go back now to your homes. So that's something that we have. Point that he's trying to make here is that if mourning for, for a shaheed was that bad, then the Prophet would have said, don't do it. He wouldn't have asked for such a thing, but he did. All right. So I've been uh, offline off of Facebook, and so now I just logged in. I saw there's a question. It says, how can the Sunni school, including scholars, do better a job at fasting on the day of Ashura and acknowledging the miracles that they say took place, but still acknowledging the tragedy of Karbala? Well, I mean, it's not going to be... Well, if you're just fasting, I would say it's fine. Um, of course, the Shia don't believe in that fast. The mainstream, I have to say, Shia, Shia don't believe that that's a day of fasting. As a matter of fact, it might be makruh to fast on that day. Um, but if a person, an unbiased Sunni brother or sister is going to fast that day because in their madhab it is mustahab to fast, then they can fast but they, it, it might be better uh, to not celebrate that day as, a, as an Eid as if, you know, because that's the feeling that you get sometimes. Now, I do have to say this by the way, that our Shia brothers and sisters have to understand that if a Sunni brother or sister is celebrating that day, it's not because of they, they might, God forbid, have animosity towards Imam Hussein Al Islam. They're just following what their scholars are telling them, and their scholars are following the madhab, what the madhab tells them. But the Shi'i school does believe that this day was made in Eid deliberately to kind of um, overshadowed the Shahada of Imam Hussain by those who didn't like Imam Hussain centuries ago. But we have to understand that in this day and age that we live in, we have to understand where each and every Muslim is coming from. One is coming from another one school of thought, another one is coming from another school of thought. Come on, they're not mujtahids. They're going to follow whatever the scholars are telling them. 
And the scholars aren't like huge muftis that uh, know everything that they're talking about. They're going to also follow the muftis, the grand muftis, where, whoever they are. Just like the Shi'is follow their maraja. And so this idea I've noticed here and there that, they, they, that, that you know, um, let's, uh, let, this person is fasting and celebrating, oh, because he has problems with Imam Hussein No, it's not the case. I have to disagree. But at the same time, if I would, as a word of, you know, just humble advice to our Sunni brothers and sisters out there who care about, um, you know, unity and their fellow Muslim brothers and sisters of the Shi'i school, that if you're going to fast that day, you fast that day, but let's not make it a day too much of celebration. This is, in the Shi'i school, this is the saddest day of the year. Ashura is the saddest day of the year because the holiest of bloods was spilled on that day. Yes? Well, somehow, brothers and sisters, we have to get along. We have to understand each other. Both Shia and Sunnah, and which are all brothers and sisters at the end of the day. Anyway, let's go back. It says, in addition, mourning for those martyred in the path of God has a philosophical underpinning. There's a reason for it as well. So he's saying, look, we have hadith for it, we have stories for it, we have verses that talk about Yaqub, you know, and so on and so forth. True. But even if you use, if you start thinking about it a little bit, you can come to a, a certain reasons why Islam would uh, encourage commemorating the martyrdoms of these great figures of Islam. What is that? He says, maintaining the grandeur of such persons is a means of preserving their school of thought, thereby upholding the perspective which is founded upon sacrifice for the sake of religion. A shaheed, remembering an imam who is martyred, especially Imam Hussein remembering him, equals remembering resistance against batil. It equals patience in the face of tribulation. I mean, today, you have people coming left and right with their issues, with their problems. Everyone has problems in their life. Everyone's struggling. And you will find people who will say like, I don't know why this is happening to me. What is wrong with me? Is God upset with me? Even this much is enough. Like even if Imam Hussein, what he did helps people like this and that's all, it would still be something worth keeping his, his memory alive for. The fact that you can tell somebody who's suffering in their life that look, don't think God doesn't like you because suffering doesn't always equal God doesn't like you or God is your enemy or something like that. No. If, God, if suffering equaled God has a problem with you, that means God had the most of, an, of a problem and issue with who? With Imam Hussein himself. Because Imam Hussein went through the most suffering and trials. Right? But no one ever says that Abu Abdullah Hussein is someone that Allah didn't love. Right? So, Imam Hussein, the least, I'm not saying this is the most, but this is the least you can get out of it is, when you keep his memory alive, is that I can be patient in the face of hardship because these saints of God and chosen ones of God even went through hardship and they showed patience. If there was anyone in the world who wasn't going to go through hardship, it would be them. So the fact that they do go through hardship shows that I need to also be as patient as I can as well. All right. So that's the least you'll get out of it, all the way to the top where Imam Hussein, what a person gets out of, out of the story of Imam Hussein is to resist against batil, to resist against the dhulm, falsehood, oppression, speaking up, standing up against those who they have to stand up against, and so on and so forth. So there's so much that comes out of keeping their memory alive 
and keeping their memory alive is through their commemoration. And that's what he's trying to say here, Ayatollah Subhani. He says, there is a philosophical underpinning maintaining them, their image, their greatness, is a means of preserving their school of thought, thereby upholding the perspective which is founded upon sacrifice for the sake of religion. When haram comes my way, yes, I always say this, when haram comes my way, what do I do? What I do is, I, I'm, I'm, I stay away from it for the sake of God, for the sake of religion. Abu Abdullah gave his life, I can't give my five minutes to get up for prayer, you know what I'm saying? Yes, alright. Brother is asking, is there such a thing as excessive mourning outside of Muharram? Uh, for example, conducting weekly like sessions of mourning, I'll call it. Or are we allowed to do so because I've heard various opinions on the matter? Also, I do. how do I explain to our Sunni brothers the origin of Matam whenever they question the validity of it? Well, this is, brother, it's, it, when it comes to Matam, for example, which is the beating of the chest, um, <laughs> it's funny because I was watching um, one of the scholars, non-Shia scholars, who was speaking about Imam Hussein and he was talking about how the Kufins betrayed Imam Hussein, and so as a result, and these Kufins were Shia, I mean, and this is something that we don't believe in, by the way, but, and there's a lot of talk about that, okay, anyway, that's a different topic I don't want to get into at all, that's something that deserves its own time and lecture, were the Kufins really Shia or not? Because that is something, that is a claim that is made. But anyway, for argument's sake, let's say, okay, they were Shia, and so they betrayed him and didn't come to help him when he was stuck in the desert of Karbala. And so as a result of that, they regret it. And so for that regret, they beat their chest. I was like, I was listening to this. I was like, come on, that's not why we believe, that's not why, why the Shia do something like that. No, beating the chest weeping, all these things are forms of expression of grief and sorrow. Yes? And so if I'm going to commemorate the martyrdom of Imam Hussein alayhi salam and, and, and be sad about it, it's natural that certain things will happen. I will shed tears. I might hit my chest like this, you know, like mothers do when they see that their son has died. You know, they beat their chest like this or with an open hand. It's become symbolic of grief and sorrow, you know, and mourning. It is, I will say, you won't find a hadith for it. So if you want to explain this to others who don't really do it, you say, look, our faith tells us to mourn and express our mourning. Some hadith tell us they put their finger on shedding tears. So we're going to do that for sure. And trust me, brothers and sisters, it's not hard to shed tears for Imam Hussein. His tragedy was so great that just remembering it brings tears to one's eyes. So tears, the hadiths have mentioned in specific, in particular, but this matam or things like that are cultural. Does that mean that it's wrong now? No, that's one way of mourning. And that's one way of expressing one's grief. And so that's why the Shia do it. Now you're saying, is there such thing as excessiveness there? Once again, it's a cultural thing. If it's a cultural thing, then you have to see what the culture says here. If it's something is excessive or not. I can't say yes or no, or draw a line, right? It's subjective. Every culture will be different. So that's, that's regarding whether it's excessive or not. And plus, these are touchy subjects. 
Um, that's why it's better sometimes not to discuss them too much because one person will be used to their culture and their way of doing things. And what happens is they'll notice another way of doing things that in another culture and all of a sudden they take offense because they're like, wait, that's wrong. Wait, no, no, it's, there is no wrong and right here. It's cultural. So every culture will do it the way they see that they want to do it as long as certain red lines of Islam are not crossed, of course. That's also important. Which usually that doesn't happen. Okay? But um, brother, if you want, we can talk more about it in person. If you ever see me around here. Alright. Um, once again, how did Noha develop to be part of Majalis for the Imams? Once again, you know, you're remembering them. It's like a type of eulogy. And then as people are listening to these trials and tip tribulations that imams, the Imams went through, especially Imam Hussein, they remember, they will beat their chest along with it, along with that recitation, right? To show that, yes, these, these, these things that have happened to the Imams is making us upset as we're listening to it. So once again, once again, it's a form of expression and expressing your grief and sorrow. Through all of this, tears come. Through all of this, remembrance comes. Through all of this, love comes. And as a result, a strong bond comes. And as a result of that strong bond, people become more religious. People are willing to do more for the religion. People who might have been got distanced from the religion come back towards the religion. When someone hears about what happened to the, the, the infant baby of Imam Hussein, that's enough for them to make a decision for the rest of their life to be a person who lives up to what Imam Hussein expected of them. So all of this is, you know, it's, it's, it's expressive. That's what I'm trying to say. So you're asking, what if I don't understand the recitation with matam? Can I avoid it? Okay, it's not wajib to do matam. So I can't tell you you have to necessarily be there or not, or you can avoid it or not. Once again, this is all cultural. When I say cultural, that means it's not going to fall under wajib and haram necessarily. So you're okay. Alright. I think sound, our, we lost sound for a second. I don't know, let me know if, it's, uh, if, if the sound is back so that I can continue. I'll wait for like 10 seconds. Let me know if you can hear me again. Alright. They're saying I, they can hear me. So we'll continue now. Um... Where were you? Okay. So it says, The logic of this, of this perspective, or excuse me, let me go back a little bit. Are we good? All right. So let's go back a little bit. Um, it says, Thereby upholding the perspective which is founded upon sacrifice for the sake of religion, and upon the ideal of refusing to submit to humiliation and disgrace. The logic of this perspective is summed up thus. So he wants to sum up everything now and conclude. A red death is better than a humiliating life. Of course, this is uh, coming from Imam Hussein, that I would rather die than live a life of humiliation under a tyrant like Yazid, right? So a red death, meaning a death that ends with someone's blood being shed, but standing for what's right, is better than a humiliating life. In every gathering of Ashura, the 10th day of the month of Muharram, commemorating the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, 
this logic is revived and entire nations have learnt and continue to learn a great lesson from his supreme act of self-sacrifice. As I said, every person will take away from this story of Karbala whatever they feel they can take. It's There's a minimum and there's a maximum really. And maybe there is no maximum, but there is a minimum. As I said, that a person will kind of like come to themselves and be like, okay, if Imam Hussein, this beloved chosen friend of God went through all of that, then maybe if I'm having struggles in my life, I shouldn't think that I'm God is angry of me or God wants to punish me or something like that. No, suffering even happens for the best of God's uh, servants. That's the minimum. It'll go up higher and higher. A person will, <coughs> will say, okay, Imam Hussein did all of this for the sake of the religion, to preserve religion, in kana dinu Muhammadan lam yastaqim illa biqatli faya suyufu khudini. If he said that he made that remark on Ashura that if the religion and deen of Muhammad won't stay and won't persist and remain except through my death, then O swords seize me and take me, meaning kill me. Right? A person will see this and say, okay, Imam Hussein this this much, so at least let me try to at least live up to that religion that he brought, that he wanted to preserve. You know, it's, it's, it, this is important by the way, and I'm speaking to my Shia brothers and sisters now. Imam Hussein gave his life so the Qur'an remains, so the Kaaba remains. <coughs> so a Shia throughout their life, in addition to their commemoration of Abba Abdullah Hussein, their love of Abba Abdullah Hussein, their remembrance and weeping for him will also spend time to learn about that which Imam Hussein wanted to preserve, which is the faith, the religion, the deen. And so, people like you who are tuned in right now, for example, to this session, that's one form, I would say, of learning about the deen. There's so much going on online these days. So many scholars using different platforms and different methods to get the message of Islam out, to teach Islam. Yes, we will be held, I think, a little responsible if we get lazy here. So anyway, all in all, Imam Hussein will inspire, yes, for the betterment of us when it comes to religion. And even, even, even more, we believe Imam Hussein can inspire all of humanity and have a good effect on all of humanity, if Islam or no Islam, it doesn't matter because his movement was a movement that even transcends all of these boundaries. Alright, that's Article 132. Let's move on to Article 133, and I'm going to end after this article. Hopefully we can go through it. Article 133 talks about preserving sacred monuments. And once again, these are not, these are not our beliefs anymore. We've already finished resurrection, death and resurrection, and hereafter. As I said before, we're going through controversial topics now. We are going through topics that are discussed amongst um, different schools of thought. One of those is preserving sacred monuments. So for example, those of you who have been to Mecca, Medina, you will notice that the tour guides, those speakers or sheikhs or whoever it is that is guiding the group and the caravan, sometimes will say, yes, over here on your right, there was a home of one of, I don't know, the companions or wives of the Holy Prophet, but now it has been demolished. If you look to your left, 
There was a, this, this place is a place where, I don't know, it was wells that were dug up by Imam Ali salam in Medina, but these have been destroyed now. The question arises, why have they been destroyed? What's wrong about the Islamic heritage that it has to be destroyed? Things have to be removed. Well, the answer that you might hear from those in that part of the world is that well, people come and gather here and revere these sites. And these, the reverence of these sites is not something that was practiced by the companions of Rasulullah So this might be a form of bid'ah and innovation and might lead to shirk. You only revere God and revere those things that God has allowed. So for example, you can revere the Kaaba. You can touch the Kaaba, you can kiss the Kaaba, you can kiss the Hajarul Aswad, the black stone and the pillar of the Kaaba. You can do all of that because that's what the Prophet would do, that's what the Sahaba would do, but anything other than that, you're not allowed to. It doesn't matter how much you revere that thing and how sacred it is in your eyes. So for example, when you're doing tawaf around the Kaaba, you will notice that there are people there who will stop you from, for example, touching, kissing the, um, the place, uh, the Maqam Ibrahim where the, where, where the Prophet, where Prophet Ibrahim set his foot to build and rebuild the Kaaba. No, no, you're not allowed to do that. You can't, I've seen even people like trying to look in that glass to see what it is and they are scolded uh, for, for that and they are pushed away from that so that they don't commit, I don't know if it's shirk or whatever they want to call it. So these holy sites that are revered, you'll notice that one after another they're being demolished, they're being grazed to the ground, and there's no sign of it anymore after a while. There's so many things that in Medina and Mecca that they have for us. And when you see it, you remember the history of the Prophet, but now it's no longer there. So that's what this article is for. He wants to talk a little bit about this issue, this matter at hand. And it's crazy because when you go and you look and you read into history, uh, maybe 150, 200 years ago, when you read of these ulama, of the Shi'i school, for example, and Sunni school of thought, how they were worried when <clears throat> the Wahhabi school took over Mecca and Medina and started you know, doing what it was doing there, getting rid of graves or you know, monuments on graves and getting rid of the heritage there. You, even, you can read the, read the writings back then of scholars writing to each other, worried that what's going on? What's going on in the Haramain al-Sharifain? Those two noble shrines of God in Mecca and Medina. They were voicing their concern because they could see that the future didn't look too good with what was going on. Anyway, let's read a little bit. Um... Um, what he says here. Let me just see. There's a question here first. Okay, but what is reverence at such holy sites in a moderate way? What is the line to not cross into shirk? Well, <coughs> I have to say, the moderate way, <coughs> apparently, any reverence is wrong. This is the problem that the, I, I don't know if I can call it this, but the moderate Sunni brothers and sisters out there and the Shia out there that's what they are scolded for because there is no moderate version of reverence. If you revere, it's problematic. doesn't matter how small or big, how moderate or excessive the, the, the uh, what's it called, the reverence is. It doesn't matter, apparently. 
If you revere, you're, it's, it's wrong, it's problematic. Why? Because the Prophet, there is not a specific hadith about it. There is not a specific account of Sahaba doing that, right? So I've spoken about this before. There are people who want to climb the Mount of Hira to see the, the worshipping place of the Holy Prophet. What's wrong with that? And pray two rakat salat there. Yet this is because it's something that the Prophet didn't do or encourage or the Sahaba didn't do, then no, you're not allowed to do it either. So if there was a moderate way, I think a lot of people would do it the moderate way, but there is no moderate way because any reverence apparently is problematic. This is how I understand it, this is how I see it, and I've seen it firsthand there as well. As you all know probably, I don't like to speak on behalf of others, and I will say it right now, I might be wrong, right? But this is how I've seen it, this is what you see on the ground, and this is what you see on YouTube and other places when they're talking about these things. You will find that and even on the walls, it's been spray-painted there. <coughs> that um, these, are things, these are acts that the Sahaba wouldn't do, so you're not allowed to do them. Where, where are you getting this from? I just want to go see where the Prophet prayed to his Lord. That will motivate me to be a better Muslim. Yeah, so that's how I see it, sister. I don't, I don't know if there is a moderate way in their eyes. And so to get in the way of this quote-unquote bid'ah or quote-unquote shirk or whatever it is that, it is that they call it, they'll just demolish the whole thing. Yes, and that's what you're seeing in this day and age, unfortunately. So it says here, people who are intellectual people all over the world make an effort to preserve the works of their ancestors, protecting such monuments against de decay, doing so in the name of their quote-unquote cultural heritage, he says. They guard such works by spending large sums of money on what they now call national monuments, for such monuments act as a link connecting the past to the present. Very important. If you want to have a past, if you want to have a history, if you want to have a heritage, the only way is through these sites, these monuments, these places. Yeah? It, it, this is something that's beyond religion. People who are from a culture, they try to preserve what has been left from their ancestors of sites, of old places, ancient places. So everyone knows, okay, this is where we came from. Everyone takes pride in that. It's something that everyone looks, at, look, looks to do. When such ancient monuments pertain to the prophets and saints, they have an influence over and above that of simply reminding people of their past. They also enhance faith and orientation towards these great individuals. So, in a secular society, right, let's say, they want to preserve their heritage. Why? Because the, their children and generations to come will know what their roots were. Ayatollah Subhani here, he says, in addition to this, if you want to talk about religious sites, not only will you remember what your roots are, it will affect and impact the religiosity of people as well when those sites are still intact. If I can see the home of the Holy Prophet, for example, if I can see the well that Imam Ali dug, for example, and I think to myself, this is where Imam Ali was, it just brings a sense of reality to me. Before I see it, I, I'm always hearing the stories, it might seem like a dream for me. But when you actually go to these places, you see, this is where my Imam is buried. Things like that. It has a whole different impact. And this is why I think that our Imams not, didn't just say remember the Imams. They said go and do their ziyarah. Go visit their graves. Go to other holy sites and so on and so forth. So he's making a very good point here. He says, 
when such ancient monuments pertain to the prophets and saints, they're not just secular, in a secular society, when it has to do with the prophets and imams, they have an influence over and above that <clears throat> of simply reminding people of their past. They also enhance faith and orientation towards these great individuals. Were such monuments not to exist, the spirit of doubt and skepticism would, after some time, afflict the followers of these of these um, of these people associated with the monuments, causing them possibly to begin to question even the principles of the faith. Yes, I agree with him. I agree with him here that it has an effect on people's religiosity, whether they like it, whether we like it or not. Keeping these things intact plays a major role in people sticking to the faith. This might be said to be a contributory factor to the decline of religious orientation in the West. Now here he's making a claim, whether I agree or disagree with him is a different story, but he says in the West we find this. How? He says today the very historical existence of Jesus is even being disputed by some skeptics. This is a fact, yes, there are some who will even deny that there is a historical Jesus. They will say, okay, whatever, biblical Jesus that's in the Bible, whatever. But there is no corresponding historical figure by the name of Jesus. It's just a made-up thing. He's saying, why is that the case? Because we don't find anything left of him um, till today, right? Now, we'll have to see if that's accurate or not. Some people might agree with this statement. Some people might disagree with it, whatever. I, that's irrelevant to the discussion right now. I don't want to share my opinion on that. Anyway, the Muslims, on the other hand, have been able to proceed with dignity and honor in this regard. Having successfully preserved the sacred places connected with the Prophet and his descendants from decay, they can claim that a holy uh, personality was indeed selected to be a Prophet over 14 centuries ago, that he launched an extremely advanced program of social betterment and brought about a profound spiritual and moral transformation from the effects of which people all over the world still benefit to today. Right? Where is he? Who says there is such a person? Well, he's buried right here, for example. Buried in Medina. It makes, a, it makes a big difference. And there can be no doubt whatsoever as regards the existence of this righteous individual and the transformation he initiated. For his birthplace, the places where he prayed and worshipped, the very spot where he received his prophetic mission, the places where he preached, the areas where he defended honorable people, and the very material on which he wrote letters to the world leaders of his age along with hundreds of other relics and traces of his life, all have been kept intact with special care and tangible concrete signs of his presence. These things add up, brothers and sisters. If someone <coughs> can deny, God forbid, the existence of Jesus like 2,000 years ago, one of their main arguments is going to be, I don't see any traces of him anywhere. Show me. But here we have his letters are left, his, a lot of things of the Prophet are left for us to see today, to experience today. The most important is where he's buried, in Medina. Then Ayatollah Subhani, he gets into a discussion here that I'm going to have to leave for our next session. He wants to prove through the Qur'an now that it is something that you have to do and observe to preserve these sites. He wants to use a verse of the Qur'an, the verse that says, Allah, 
ولا بيع عن ذكر الله until the end of the verse Surah Nur verses 36 and 37 right he wants to use that inshallah we'll cover that in our next session we have article after this article ends we have article 134 which has to do with visiting graves and 135 which has to do with غلوب an exaggeration of the status of uh, certain figures of Islam and we'll be done with this chapter of controversial topics um, regarding the Shia faith. He covered a good 10-12 of them. And uh, I think, you know, it was good. Um, once that's done, I'm going to finish this, this whole series probably. Um, because after article 130, where is it, 5, the next 15 articles till article 150 where the book ends have to do with hadith transmission what ijtihad is and all of that i feel that that is not directly connected to and related to uh our faith and our belief system uh when i say faith i mean our beliefs and so it's not an aqidah issue it's just extra um stuff that he's brought here um and oh, so i will end after next session our next session is in two weeks once that session is over, we're going to close this book. And that session might go longer than an hour, just letting you know. Once that's over, I will, we will take a break from, I will take a break from Mizan Live um, in April. And inshallah Ramadan will come and we'll see if we're doing anything in Ramadan. Um, and inshallah after Ramadan, there's a good chance that I will either continue the book. If I feel that no, it's good to continue it. If not, maybe start with a new book. But... You know, those of you who are following our social media pages and everything, um, you will be updated. Just look out for the keep an eye open for, or keep an eye out for, the flyers, uh, either on Instagram or Facebook. So before I end, let me just see. Um, there's two more questions here. Do current ayatollahs share this same view of same view of having to preserve the sites? Yes, 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 yes. It's very important, sister. They do. Um, they do share that, and they are very serious about it as well. And was, and uh, also will other issues of transgender and things like that. These don't have to do with our beliefs, so these won't be discussed either. You know, transgender issues and stuff like that. So, no. The name of the book, sister is asking. Let me just say it one more time: Doctrine, Doctrines of Shi'i Faith, by Ayatollah Sheikh Jafar as Subhani. There's also a PDF online. I've heard. Maybe you want to message the Mizan Facebook page. I think they're, they're brothers who you know would know where, where to find that PDF or there's links to it that they can share maybe. I don't know um, if you want the digital version. But I think that it's on Amazon as well if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so with that, we're going to end. Next session is two weeks from now, inshallah, where we are going to try our best to finish this book, inshallah. Thank you for tuning in and staying till the end. Keep us in your du'as till our next session. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.